Hope y'all are doing well. We are, as the video said, on the journey. If you have no idea what that means, if this is your first week with us, it means this book right here is something that most people are going to have with them. Um, if you don't have one, it's no big deal. There are plenty of them right back there at the table. Go back there and grab one. We are going on uh, a journey, if you will, as a church. We are reading through the Bible in a year, and each week um, we are also going to be preaching through the Bible this year. So if you don't have one of these at any moment, feel free to walk back there and grab one. There's, there's, pl- there's actually plenty on the table. Uh, if this is your first week, Jack did a, like an excellent introduction of what we're doing uh, last week, and I'm going to try to get close to explaining what he did, or what he said, because it was, it was really good. Basically, um, each week, uh, you'll have about five or six readings in this book, and <clears throat> you'll notice across the top, there's, if you, you can't see this far, but across the top, this is reading 22 of January. There's four different readings for, for the month of January, um, and those four different readings, uh, we want you to do those each day, and out of one of those four, we're going to pick one and we're going to preach through it. So this particular month in January, you'll notice that you're reading Matthew, Acts, Psalm, and Genesis. Well, uh, we're trying to pick things that we haven't preached on already. So you're, if you remember, we preached 90 sermons through the book of Matthew. So as you're reading Matthew, we're not going to do any Matthew this month. So we've picked the Psalms this particular month. So the Psalm readings each week, last week we had one through three or four, and Jack did Psalm 1. This week we had... Uh, Psalm 4 through 9, I think, and I'm doing 8, and then next week it'll be Psalm 10 through whatever, and we'll pick one of those. Uh, And so during January, we're doing the Psalms. During February, I think we're doing Exodus, uh, and those particular four readings, we'll pick one of those, and we'll preach through that particular section. There's going to be a a Romans month, um, which is going to be very troubling to try to do the entire book of Romans in four weeks. Um, It's like systematic theology in fast forward. That's going to be very frustrating for me, but I'm going to do it anyway. Um, we have another month where we're doing some Old Testament narrative like the Kings. So each month, as you're reading the one of those four, we're going to pick one of those and preach on it that particular month. So um, that's what's going on. And then every six days, you'll notice there's a little place that says sermon notes. And you just bring this with you along with your Bible and write the sermon notes. And then after that, uh, that particular Sunday and readings, you take the book with you to community group. And you discuss what you're learning that week in, uh, in your Bible readings, etc. So... Um, if you, if, if, we want to make sure you do this one thing as well. Uh, when you get it, read this beginning little section that Jack and I wrote, which helps you realize that this is not a legalistic exercise whatsoever, but an endeavor of joy. This is an endeavor of joy. So uh, make sure you, you grab one of these and read it. Um, also, you know what? I, uh, I thought of this this week. I want everybody right now to do this. Get a pen. Everybody grab a pen. And in the very front cover right here, I want you to write your name. Because I, th- I think uh, over the course of the, of the year, um, y'all are going to leave yours. Jordan's going to leave his, his like, like seven times this year. So we want to be able to know it's his. Um, <laughs> I'm just kidding, Jordan, wherever you are. So everybody write your name right there because likely it's blank. And so that if you accidentally leave it at community group or in your, you know, in, in your row or anything like that, we know whose it is. And they all look exactly alike. So it would be troubling trying to figure out whose this is. And we don't want to read you know, what you're personally applying in your life and and, and, and those things that you're writing in the Bible. So everybody write your name right there. Mine just says FUD. Uh, and then we all know whose it is. So if you accidentally leave it, we can get it to you. So um, that's all I have for the beginning of the, uh, the journey intro stuff. So I, as, as I said, I'm going to be doing Psalm 8 today. So if you have a Bible, it's right there in the middle. Uh, go ahead and open up to Psalm 8. And uh, I'm going to pray, and then we'll, we'll go ahead and get started. So let's pray. 
Lord, we thank you so much for your word. I thank you that uh, all over your word, there are so many facets of being able to see who you are, that we can know you in so many different ways because of the way that you have revealed yourself in your word. And so uh, today being no different, we're going to see how amazingly awesome you are. And we pray, God, that you would come now and open up our hearts and open up our minds to be able to, with, with our limited capacity, our, our finite minds, begin to understand how big you are and that that would inform the way we live our lives. Pray for help for myself, God. I know that there's no way I can do this without your assistance, without your help to come now and, and speak through me and really move my sinful self aside. So come now and, and do that, God. I pray that after this we would have a changed view on what we mean when we say how majestic you are. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so Psalm 8. Uh, Jordan was bugging me all week to do the Sandy Patty song. I had to tell him like 20 times, we're not going to do the Sandy Patty. Oh, Lord, oh, Lord, how majestic is your name and all. You only know that what I'm talking about if you're 40 probably. Um, but uh, Psalm 8, if you look at verse 1 and if you look at verse 9, you look at verse 1 and verse 9, you can see that he says the same thing. Oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Verse 9. Oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Now, um, if a psalm or anything you're reading says something twice, especially at the beginning and at the end, you can already bank that you know what this psalm's about. So for us, it, we, we already know. This psalm is about the majesty of God. There's, there's no question about it. The, the, the writing in between is going to unpack for us and help us see and understand the majesty of God. So here, here's the problem I have, and here's my goal. Let me go ahead and tell you my problem and goal as I'm, as I'm beginning. Here's my goal. That for you, when you hear the word majesty, from now on, for the rest of your life, majestic majesty, whenever you hear that word, that hopefully today you'll get, we'll all get a better understanding of it, and that you will never be the same again for the rest of your life when you hear the word majesty. That we would all be able to, the Lord would allow, start getting to have a better understanding of just how unbelievably majestic the Lord is. Here's my problem. In, in sermon writing, and uh, in, in, you know, sermon one, prep 101 in seminary, <clears throat> they, they tell you all the time, you got to give application. People like to know what they need to do. After you tell them something big, they say, that's big. How do I do that? And usually um, on sermons like this, the, the, the application is, I want you to see and know how big God is. Okay? Then what? That's it, though. <laughs> I don't have any application, and we don't like not having application. So the rest of the sermons that are coming this year, the other 50, there'll be applications, likely. But as we're starting this year, and I think Jack did an amazing job starting last week of showing us uh, the importance of having a deep desire to want to see and know God in His Word. Week two, I'm also wanting us to just have a big, grand vision of how big God is. And we're hoping that those kinds of sermons will lead us into the rest of the week of the, of the year wanting to be in his word, but also applying everything. So the majesty of God, 
The bigness, the grandness of God literally informs everything that you do. So I'm not going to give a whole lot of application today. I'm just hopefully going to be able to paint with words the biggest, grandest picture of God that I can. And just re- I want you to realize that it always informs your application. If you're reading this week in, in Acts 5, um, it, it informs Ananias and Sapphira how they should have responded and not withheld their money. That if they had a bigger view of God, they wouldn't have been taking a, a quick little dirt nap. But also right after that, the, the disciples, they did have a big grand view of God. And when they were told, and later on in Acts 5, when they were told, you, you can't speak about Jesus anymore, they said, well, I can't not speak about Jesus anymore. It's the only thing I can do because they had a big grand view. So having a big grand view of God always gives us um, an idea of what we're supposed to do. It gives us application. So that, that's my goal today is that we would have a huge grand view of God and it always informs the way we live. Um, but I don't have, therefore, so now you need to go do X, Y, Z. I don't have that today. I just have this big grand picture of God. So, um, Acts one, I'm sorry, Psalm 8, as we look at verse 1 and verse 9, it says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. The interesting thing about our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, is he lived in the Psalms. I mean, he quoted the Psalms. Whenever, anytime he was confronted Mostly, he would, he would quote the Psalms. You, you don't stand or you don't hang on a cross as you're dying and say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 22. And not bleed the Psalms in, in all of your life. So as we're looking at these Psalms, realize that our Lord and Savior Jesus loved the Psalms. And in this particular verse, it's, uh, uh, Psalm 1, I'm sorry, Psalm 8, verse 1, it starts and I want to unpack this little, this little verse for us, the, the meaning of the text, Psalm uh, 8.1, Psalm 8.9. I want to unpack it a little bit for us just in case you're not familiar with it. O oh Lord, so now if you notice uh, already the, the two word lords there are different. The first one's in all caps and the second one has a capital L, but the, the O-R-D and the second word are lowercase. That's because he's using two different Hebrew words there. O Lord, O Yahweh, our Adonai. So he's saying, O Lord, capital, all caps. That's from Exodus 3.14. When Moses says, what should I say? Who should I say sent me? He says, tell them the I am sent you. Tell them Yahweh sent you. This that also can come out into the word Jehovah. It's just the same word. Um, and so this is, this is the, the name that God told Moses to tell everybody to call him. Yahweh, I am. This is the name that's supreme and all-powerful. This is, that, um, this is signifying to us that there's no place where he does not rule and reign over everything. He's the I am. He's the always having been. He's never becoming. He's the biggest there is. There is no beginning. There is no ending. He's never becoming. He stands alone as the absolute. He is the Yahweh, the I am. So, O Yahweh, and then it says, our capital L, then lowercase O-R-D. This is Adonai. This is, this is Lord as in master. O God, our Yahweh, our never-ending, always, um, always never-becoming, always huge master. O Lord, our Lord. And then it says how majestic. And then it says is your name. So there's, there's something here obviously about his 
name in all the earth. Um, we're going we're to get into some scientific things in this, in this psalm. But as we hear David writing the earth, uh, David's not a scientist and he lived a long time ago. And so as he says these things, he, he's certainly not intentionally limiting to himself to the, to the space that he's referring to. So when he says your name, uh, how majestic is your name in all the earth? He's not just limiting it to this one planet. He means everywhere. Oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name? And as Calvin talks about this, this idea of, of name, he's talking about this is the knowledge of the character and of all the perfections of God. He is the central reality of everything. So it, as we're even just unpacking that already, Psalm 8, 1. Oh Lord, oh Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. The central reality of everything that we will ever come into contact with our life. What does that mean then as we embark on the journey? What does that mean as we embark on the journey? It does not mean this. So you better read your Bible. That is so limiting. It's just amazingly limiting to say it that way. It would mean far more. The implications would be far greater. It, does, it doesn't just mean that you should read your Bible. It Of course it means that you, as a follower of Christ, would want to give Jesus 10 to 15 minutes a day to read his word and know who he is. But not just 15 minutes a day that maybe we will half-heartedly sometimes give. It means as we embark on the journey and we see, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. It means that we would give him our entire lives for the rest of our lives. So as we talk about what does it mean to embark on the journey, it it doesn't mean that you need to feel guilty and hopefully you can muster up enough strength to give God the 15 minutes a day to read his word. It means far more than that. It means you're going to give him your entire life. So yes, I want to read, but it's not like he gets 15 and the other, whatever, 23, 45 are mine. It means here's my life, God. Whatever you want, it's all yours. And of course I want to of course I want to be in your word because I, there's no other way that I can know you. How majestic is your name in all the earth. So now what I want to do here is we're looking at Psalm 8 and we understand that it's all about the majesty of God. There's two observations regarding the majesty of God that I want to make. Um, and that the observations come by way of contrast. There's, there's two contrasts, observations slash contrasts in Psalm 8 that for us in this particular text are going to highlight for us some things about the majesty of God. So let's look at those. Observation number one is in verse two. Let's read verse two. Out of the mouth of babes and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. So it's interesting. Out of nowhere, I mean, Seemingly nowhere, and maybe even very confusing. We have this first little phrase in verse 2. It's like, what is that? O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. We're talking about the grand majesty of God. And then in verse 2 it says, Out of the mouth of babies and infants. What has been done out of the mouths of babies and infants? Well, you've established your strength 
because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. This is, this is bizarre language, is it not? God has enemies. This shouldn't surprise us. The Lord has enemies all the time. They don't trouble him whatsoever. He's not wringing his hands wondering how he can get rid of his enemies. They don't trouble him. He doesn't lose sleep over it. Our Lord never sleeps. But as we think about this, it's interesting language, though, to say he has enemies, so he's going to defeat them by having babies talk and defeat them. That's, that's strange language. So observation number one here is just the first little slide there on that one is the contrast is we have God in contrast to babies. So the first contrast, we're going to see the observation in just a second, but the contrast is coming to us by babies. Now, <clears throat> what are these babies doing and why are they being mentioned? It seems from the verse, as I've already said, it's indicating that they are defeating the enemies of God. How do babies who are absolutely, completely, and utterly dependent creatures, they literally cannot survive unless someone does something for them. No baby self-survives. They're completely and utterly dependent creatures. How do babies defeat the enemies of God. I feel like I need to make a little parenthetical statement because um, we've got babies like blowing up in the church and they're still blowing up. And parents, I know that you're thinking, um, I know how babies defeat people because <laughs> I'm, I'm being defeated daily, Fud. What are you talking about? I'm not talking about that. <laughs> I understand that they can defeat parents and we don't get sleep and we feel like we're losing the battle every day. And once you hit three months, it gets better. We're, you know, as you know, we're hitting number six and, you know, so we, we've got, we've got the, I understand what you're saying, but I'm not talking about how babies can defeat parents. I'm talking about how, how do babies defeat God's enemies? Because they are, as, as we look across the spectrum of creation, nothing is more weak than a baby. Utterly dependent upon everything to be given to them. And he's saying that those babies are defeating the enemies of God. Not only are they doing it, it says this, the way that they're doing it, out of the mouth of babes and infants. Babies' words are defeating God's enemies. Consider that for a second, the contrast that's being made. We just said how majestic is God. We're trying to paint a picture of how unbelievably huge God is. And then in the very next verse, he tells us that he has enemies and he's huge. And if he wanted to, because he's so huge, he could walk down the sidewalk like we do. And there's a squash, just like a bug, dead enemy, no big deal. And he's not doing it that way. He is massive and could squash them like a bug at any time. And instead, he's going to defeat them with babies' speech. What are the babies saying? Out of the mouths of babes and infants, you've established strength. So we, we don't know. We don't know what they're saying. We don't know what's coming out of their mouth. But what we do know is that whatever it is that's coming out of their mouths is defeating the enemies of God. So how does that have to, what does that have to do with the majesty of God? This is it. The, 
the demonstration or the observation that we can make regarding the majesty of God here is this, is that God, who is infinitely larger than we could ever conceive or imagine, is stooping down to us, which is no small thing. It's a huge thing. It's a loving thing, but it's a huge thing that God would stoop down and use babies to be the means by which he triumphs over his enemies and displays his majesty. That's how amazingly huge he is and strong he is and majestic he is that he can defeat his enemies by using the absolute weakest creature we know as humans, a baby, and has them talk with something and he can defeat. God's majesty is the kind that stoops down and uses, don't miss this, the weakest possible means to defeat his enemy. Now, man, I, I, I want to get to my conclusion right now. I don't want to give it away, but man, that is, I don't know if you heard that, but that's crazy, unbelievable. Listen, God is the kind that stoops to use the weakest possible means to defeat his enemies, to display his majesty. I'm going to come back to that because, and I can't, I wish I could do it right now. But then I get rid of my whole conclusion. So, um, as I said, if God has enemies, certainly he could do it any other way. He could squash them like a bug, but he doesn't. Instead, he displays his majesty to us by using weak babies, speech to defeat them. So, you can go ahead and put up the second part is this. If we're going to look at the majesty of God, we're going to understand that that means that he defeats his enemies. As surely as the sun will come up tomorrow, God will defeat his enemies. And his majestic nature that's being shown to us in the Psalms helps us remember that God is the kind of God that defeats his enemies the means by which he does it, which is, is, which is remarkable, is through weak, unsuspecting things. What does that mean for you every day? I, I could litany out a, a list of applications for us right now. But I'll, I don't want to. I want you to continue to keep your mind focused on the grandness of God. So, that's the first thing. That's number one, is that We're looking at that contrast of God and babies and we're realizing that God defeats his enemies. His majesty is so amazing that he absolutely defeats his enemies and the way by which he does it is so contrary to the way that we would think that he takes weak, 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 weak babies and has them speak and they defeat, they're defeated. All right, so that's contrast one as we, as David is trying to help us understand this grandness of God. Contrast 2 comes in the rest of these verses, Psalm 3 through 8. Let's, let's read 3 through 8, get the whole uh, perspective. You're going to hear Genesis 1, creation mandate language, as you get down there in, in 7 and 8. But we'll just want you to get the whole perspective here. And when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? So David, no scientist, is trying to say, I mean, this is... I can look out there and I can understand that things are huge. They're huge. And I'm so small comparatively to all this creation. 
since I'm so small, what are you doing thinking of me? You're huge. If you made all this, you've got to be bigger than all of it. Look, all right. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, when you have set in place, what is man that you're mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him. Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. We're so small, but what have you done? This is crazy what you've done, considering we're so small. Yet you have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. And so we have this picture being painted for us. David's not a scientist. He doesn't have the Hubble telescope, but he understands some things. When I stand here and I look at the landscape and I see a mountain, it looks pretty small. But when I walk over to it and I get close up to this mountain, I realize, oh, it's much larger than when I stand, you know, four miles away. And he takes that same thought and he looks up at the skies and he sees the stars and the moon and he realizes I'm pretty far away, so they're pretty small. But if I were to get closer, they would be enormous. And then there's a whole lot of them. I mean, a whole lot of them all over the place. And so they must be immensely larger than me. And then there's so many of them, and you have to be immensely larger than all of those things. So as David is looking around, and he doesn't have necessarily all the, the, the science you know, kind of findings that we have, he's looking around and he's saying, the God in the heavens that puts these things there, when we're talking about the majesty of God, he's looking at creation, he's saying, the God that makes all these things, he must be absolutely enormous. I, I, wanna, I don't hardly ever do this, but I have a video I want you to watch just to give us a little bit of a perspective on the size of things. So we're going to see the earth, our star, which is the sun, and then two other massively larger stars. Go ahead and show this video. And we're gonna, I want you to get a perspective, and then we're going to come look at this. Um, we're going to come look at this in the scriptures. Verse 3 says, When I look at your heavens, the works of your fingers, the moon and the stars. I don't know if you noticed, but how much larger the, the, the red one, the majorist, canorist, or whatever it was, he placed that, did you see how much larger it was? I mean, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of earth go into just our sun, and hundreds and hundreds of sun go into that blue one, and the hundreds and hundreds of that blue one go in, and it says that he gets that, that huge blue one, which would take millions and millions of just our sun to make it. It says that he takes that one, that largest one, and with his fingers, places it in the heavens like it's a marble for his fingers. I want you to think about the hand, anthropomorphically, the hand that's placing the largest star into the heavens, and then consider what must be then the size of our God that he's placing. And then David is, we're getting a perspective of David. He's like, you're so enormous, and everything you've done is so massive. What are you doing thinking of me? Who am I? Who am I in this particular universe that you would come down and look at me in this particular solar system, in this particular planet, in this particular country and state and city? Who am I, this tiny speck in this massive creation you have? 
What are you doing thinking about me? What is man that you would be mindful, and not just mindful of me? You're not just thinking, what is he doing? He's not just thinking of us. What is he doing? Verse 6 says, he is making us the people that get to oversee and rule the universe. You have given him dominion over, it doesn't say earth, the works of your creation. He's given us the creative mandate. The creation mandate. I have made all this stuff. I've put all things under your feet, as it says in verse 6. All the sheep, all the oxen, all the beasts, all the birds, all the heavens, all, everything. Now, we're not stealing that away from the Lord. He rules and reigns over everything. But he's saying, you are so much smaller than everything I've ever made. And yet, you're going to be that's going to rule and reign over this creation. What is man that you're mindful of, the son of man that you care for him? You have made him little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. So here, the second thing that we're seeing here, the second contrast then is God comparatively to man. Infinitely larger than us and yet thinking of us. Not just thinking of us, but giving us the creation mandate from Genesis 1. Babies in verse 2 are defeating the enemies of God. Men here are ruling the universe, or at least this planet, right now, <laughs> um, to our knowledge, right? The, the other, I don't know, a few months ago, maybe, went and saw this movie Interstellar. Um, maybe you've seen it and had your mind kind of like bent and shaped. What in the world? Is this real? All right, so here's, it's, it's a science fiction movie. That just I'm going to ruin it. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. If you hadn't seen it, it's your own fault. You should have seen it by now. Um, I'm just kidding. It's not on Redbox, I know. Um, the gist is this. The gist, I'm not going to ruin it because there's a whole other kind of point that it's making. The gist is this. Earth's no longer livable. And, and so and it's our fault. You know, we should have lived more green. But the, basically, the Earth's no longer livable. And so we have to find somewhere else to live. And the, pe- the people that made this have a good idea about the grandness of God. Surely, in this unbelievably large creation that he places with a finger like a marble in that biggest star. I mean, if he's that big, he's had a creation that big, surely there's somewhere else, somewhere that we could live. And so it's science fiction and they rocket ship to places, etc. But if that were real, we wouldn't be disobeying God. Going somewhere else in his creation to live. We would be obeying him because... He's saying, this is my creation, live in it. Now, I don't want to leave. I'm not, I'm not going to be on the, on, the, on the rocket to take me to the next place that's kind of like earth. I'm staying right here. Um, but my point is this. God has given, as it says in verse 6, us the command to rule the universe. Not, not over him. Not over him. Don't hear that. We're, I'm even going to address that in just a second. But you have given him dominion over the works of your hands. And he's ruling by the weakness of man. So what we see here is this. That if man is being thought of by God and being told in verse 6 to have dominion over all the the works of his hands. And yet it's God with his fingers places the biggest star that we can think of in there. It shows us the grandness of him. What's that showing us? The observation is this. Is that God rules his world. 
God rules his world. God defeats his enemies, and God rules his world. And we're seeing a display then of how much grander and larger and more majestic than maybe we have ever even had a notion to have the thought of, of how big he is. And it says, You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. Now, the notion could come to us as we read that, the, the, create, the creative mandate or creation mandate from Genesis 1 to use all of this, it's yours, take care of it. Um, and we read 3 through 8, we could say, wow, what are you that you're mindful of me? I know what you are. You've given me dominion to rule over the whole works of your hands. Like, I, I have dominion. It's mine to rule over. And, and just to keep any notion of pride creeping up in your mind and heart and mind heart to make us think that it's about us or we get to have the, the idea to call the shots, he sends in the refrain of verse 9 that he told us again at verse 1. Just in case you're thinking the creative mandate is about you and that it's, you're the one that has the power, don't forget verse 9. I'm going to say it again so that you don't think it's about you. Oh, Lord, our, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And again, I've said it's not just limited. It's, it's everywhere. So for God just kind of to give us that little subtle reminder to our pride that, yes, you are being given dominion, but it's because I've given it to you. And I still call the shots and rule and reign over everything. But you get to be able to be here and have dominion over everything that I've made. So that's, that's where we're seeing so far. Now, this is where there's a couple things I, I want to do in, in conclusion. Um, I was going to go to one little place. It's, no, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. If you want to talk about it later, I can. This is what I want to do. This is what I want to conclude with this. Um, in Matthew chapter 21, Jesus quotes Psalm 8. Interesting. He bleeds the Psalms. This is who he is. Matthew chapter 21, I want you to see the context. So go to Matthew 21, 1, and let's get the context of what's going on. Um, and I want to conclude with something that's Breathtaking what Jesus is doing as he's quoting Psalm 8. And he's given us a little bit better understanding. At any time in the New Testament, they quote something in the Old Testament. It gives us a better understanding of what's going on in the Old Testament because the New Testament writer is interpreting it for us. And so here we have, if you have uh, your Bible already at Matthew 21, you see the little title, The Triumphal Entry. What's going on? It's Holy Week. He's lived his life. He's done his three years of ministry. He knows. He's told them. You've been with me in Matthew repeatedly. He knows the end is near. And he knows that in the next few days he's going to die. It's Holy Week for him. It's, it's the end. This is the end. Matthew 21.1. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, and that's, he knew what that meant. He's going to be quoting Psalm 8 in one of the most crucial moments of his life. We, we don't need to miss the... The context. And he came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, and said, and sent two disciples saying, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says to you, I want you to do your best to try to read this Matthew 21 through those lenses of Psalm 8. If anyone 
Any, anything, uh, if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them. God needs them. The Lord. Oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic. All right. This took place to fulfill what's spoken by the prophet saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming. O Lord, our Lord. So we have the Lord God, Yahweh, needing something and tell him that the master, Adonai, needs them. It's coming. Behold, your king is coming to you. And this is just, this is where it gets amazing. Humble. Mounted on a donkey. We have this humble king being displayed to us. On a colt full of beasts of burden, the disciples went and did as Jesus directed them. They brought, they brought the donkey and the colt and put them on their cloaks um, and put on them their cloaks and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road. Others cut branches and trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went before them that shouted, they were shouting, Hosanna. This is Hebrew for salvation. God give us salvation, if you will. And it says, to the son of David. David is going to have a son, eventually, grand, grand, great, 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 grandson. And they knew that he would be the king. They knew that he would be the Messiah. And so they're giving him, with exclamations, the, the title of, we know you're the Messiah. We know that you're the king. And they're saying, Hosanna, save us. Save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. I mean, this is astounding. Some of the, oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem, the holy week, whose whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth. This is the holy week, remember. This is the, the moments he's going to the Christ to defeat the ultimate enemy. And Jesus entered the temple and he drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those of, of, who sold pigeons. And he said, um, it is written, my house, that's taking the, the title of God himself, shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came into the temple and he healed them. So now he's overturning tables and now he's healing, giving physical healings, which is a metaphor for the spiritual realities that he also gives them, which is healing of their sin. But when the chief priest came and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna, the son of David. Here we have babies, children with their mouths yelling praises to Adonai. This is, don't miss this. Don't miss this because you won't get, when he quotes Psalm 8 to what's going on. And all the, um, all that were there, these Pharisees, the scribes, the chief priests, they're indignant. What are you allowing to happen here? Children are saying, you are the Messiah and they're screaming out your praises. What are you doing? Don't you hear what they're saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes, I do hear. I mean, just pause and live in the yes before we get to the rest. Yes, I do hear what they're saying. And you know what? I'm not going to stop them. Not going to stop them. Because what they're saying is right. And he looks at them, the people that are supposed to know the scriptures, and says, have you never read... And then he quotes, quotes Psalm 8, 2. This is, this, this is breathtaking. 
out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies, referring to these children that are screaming his praises, you have prepared praise. Okay, so but that's different. That's different than what we read. Okay, I know. In Psalm 8, 2, this is the Hebrew. Jesus looks at the Septuagint and quotes the Septuagint. It was written in Hebrew, and as they're trucking down the, through the histories of time, people started speaking Greek, and they looked at the Hebrew, and they, it's just like we have English translations. They said, we're going to translate the Old Testament in Greek now. And that Greek, that Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament is called the Septuagint. And Jesus makes this call here. He makes this messianic call on which one do I want to pick because they're different. Psalm 8.2 says, Out of the mouths of babes and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the avenger. Here he says in Psalm 8.2, Out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. In the Hebrew, we don't know what they're saying. Remember, what are they saying? We don't know what they're saying. It says, Out of the mouths of infants, babes and infants, you have established strength. We don't know what they're saying, but whatever it's doing is defeating enemies. And Jesus, God, makes this messianic call to say, I'm going to choose the Septuagint here, and I'm going to tell you what's happening here. Two things happening here as he's doing it. The first thing is just breathtaking. The second thing is literally jaw-dropping. The first one, he says, I'm not going to stop them. Haven't you read Psalm 8-2? What's coming out of their mouths is prepared praise. Therefore, the prepared praise is the thing that defeats the enemies. And the enemies are these particular people. And you know what happens the rest of the uh, book of Matthew? They don't say anything else. The enemies are defeated. They're done. And he's looking at them and he's saying, you know what's going on here? The enemies of God in this particular Holy Week are being silenced. Here, now, in this moment. This is the last week. This is the Holy Week. And the enemies of God that have been screaming against you and against me, they're all being silenced right now by their prepared praise because they're saying, Hosanna, God save us. And that's, that's what Christ is doing in 8-2. He's saying, right now, it's happening. I am hushing up my, all my enemies and defeating them. So when we say, the enemies are defeated, the grandest way they have been defeated for us is on the cross. And that's what he's saying. The enemies have been defeated by the babe who became man and lived the perfect life and destroyed all of the enemies. And therefore, by faith, we can have life. Our enemies have been defeated by Christ. That's the first thing he says, which is breathtaking to them. I mean, it's just breathtaking. The second one is literally jaw-dropping. And that's why they get so crazy. He says that, and it says, in leaving them, they went out to the city of Bethphage. The second thing he's doing is this. In this particular moment, he's saying, <clears throat> what comes out of those babies' mouths? It is praise. And that praise, as you know from Psalm 8-1, is directed toward God. Oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And they are yelling out praises, and it's prepared praise, and praise goes to God, and that's it. And so the scribes and the Pharisees are realizing what he's saying in that moment. They're yelling praise to God, and it's about me. They're yelling praise to me, scribes and Pharisees. You know who's God? Me. That, that's jaw-dropping to them. It's as if 
you got to hear this. Try to, try to do your best to hear this in the Jewish pharisaical, know the law, can't stand who you are, Jesus mind. Jesus is looking at them and saying, they might as well be saying, oh, Jesus, not Yahweh. I mean, they don't even say Yahweh, much less ever put in, like scratch that out, put in another name. And he's looking at them, jaw-dropping information. They might as well be saying, oh, Jesus, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. That's scandalous. That's jaw-dropping that he would say that to them. So those are the two things he's doing right there as he quotes Psalm 8-2 in his holy week. I'm defeating the enemies right here and no one's going to talk anymore. And it's about to happen in about six days. And by the way, I, I am God. I place those stars in the heavens. I am the biggest thing you could ever conceive of. The majesty of God is before you right now, stooping, Stooping, becoming God the man in the form of the the baby, defeating our greatest enemy, sin. And also, Jesus is not just a babe, but he's also a man. Remember the two contrasts from Psalm 8-1? The other one is also, I am the man that really does rule and reign over all creation. I know in Psalm 8, it's talking about us. But, and this is what I didn't have time for, if you go to 1 Corinthians 15, 27, and and right after that, Paul takes Psalm 8, 6, and says, that's really about Jesus. Jesus is the one that rules and reigns over everything. I didn't have time for it. You can just do it on your own. But that's really about Christ. And so those two things that are being displayed to us, Psalm 8 is teaching us that he is the babe that came and defeated our enemies our greatest sin. And he is the man, the God man now that rules and reigns over all creation. His name is majestic. His name is due any and all praise with our entire lives that we can give. Our life must live out this particular truth. Oh, Jesus, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Oh, Jesus, how Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all of my life. I want you to think of it that way. Not just out there in the externals, but right here. Jesus, my Lord, how majestic is your name in all my life. Let's let's worship him. God, thank you for your word. Be with us now as we worship. I pray that as we have, have tried we haven't come close but we've tried to have a vision of your majesty how grand you are that we would say Jesus our Lord how majestic is your name in all of my life praise in Jesus name